Hello and welcome back to the Moses and Methuselah podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and in this series, Peter Silen and I draw on our many years of working in the financial markets to chew the fat about current topics of interest, whether it's stocks and shares, politics, diplomacy or even books and films into which we sometimes also wander. We hope that you'll find some value in our friendly but often very different perspectives, one continental, one UK centric on the big issues of the day. Peter, it's very good to talk to you again about the markets uh, in our regular podcast. And my word, how interesting the markets have become. In the last few weeks, we've had an enormous amount of uh, headlines and commentary about inflation and the fears that inflation uh, is going to become not only higher in the short term, but also possibly more permanently. Uh, And there's talk of interest rates from the uh, Federal Reserve possibly going up sooner than people anticipate. Uh, And meanwhile, while we're coming out of the COVID pandemic, uh, a lot of concern about uh, supply shortages and the fact that some shelves are empty in the shops and so on. So there is a kind of whirlwind of concern about we might be moving to a new era in the economy and in the markets. Now, first of all, I think I might just kick off by saying, where do you think we are at this point? And we can then talk about what the uh, implications might be for investors. Jonathan, it's very nice to be back on stream, and I hope you're well. I think the timing of this conversation is good, because today is the last day of October, and although September was a very difficult month for investors, all investors, October turns out to have been the best month since the beginning of the year, which in itself is not so interesting as a fact, but it shows that once again, the market and the participants in the market have been wrong-footed. And also what's interesting is that October has closed now on a very strong note. So markets, the important markets are on their all-time highs, which means, I'm sure you'll agree, because you've got a lot of experience, that it is more likely that going into the year-end, we will have a strong stock market than a weak one. Be that as it may, one shouldn't make too many predictions, but it looks as if the wind is in our back. Obviously, the worldwide inflation has, in a way, been expected. We all knew it would come. But what is unexpected about it is that it has permeated the entire globe, has been much stronger in terms of higher numbers than expected, and is stubbornly hanging around. So the big question is, is it transitory or is it not transitory? And sometime in the next 12 months, we will be going back to the slow growth, low inflation, low interest rate environment, the big long. That's the key question. It is a key question, and you're quite right, as always. Of course, the chief uh, proponent of the view that... uh, This inflation spurt, if you like, is transitory, is the Federal Reserve, the largest central bank in the world and the most influential one. But they've been slightly modifying their tune a little bit in the last uh, few weeks, acknowledging that there may be slightly more to this inflation surge than they previously thought, or at least uh, uh, wanted us to believe. And there is some evidence that we've seen some increase in what we call uh, break-even rates. In other words, the the kind of future inflation rates that are implied in uh, bond market prices. But, uh, well, let's get to the the meat of this, uh, Peter. In your view, do you think that we are going back to the big long? uh, Or do you think there is actually more to this particular phase in the markets and what people are talking about than we thought before? 
I'm glad to note that you didn't ask me when I think that we're going back to the big long, but whether I think we're going back to the big long. And as a matter of fact, I do think that we're going back to the big long. Indeed, I could even argue that we are in the big long. We never left the big long. And um, if I were on a, on a desert island with only one thing to look at on a screen, or let's say two things to look at, let's say, let's be generous, then one of those two would be the yield on the US 10-year treasury bond. And the other would be the exchange rate between the Swiss franc and the euro. On the former, I would say that what has caught a lot of people by surprise is the fact that the 10-year treasury yield in the US, which currently stands at about 1.56, should be hovering somewhere between 2 and 3%, let's say 2.5% by now. And it hasn't. So the Fed that you mentioned is scratching its head. Are they behind the curve because the short end yield is nudging up and because all the commentators are saying you are behind the curve? Or is the Fed not at all behind the curve because the 10-year Treasury yield is not implying that the Fed is behind the curve? As far as the Swiss franc and euro exchange rate is concerned, well, yes, the Swiss franc has edged up. It has nudged its way up a little bit, but it's not yet in a territory where it hits the front pages. So the bond yield is very important. The central banks are scratching their heads. Some of them are more coherent and eloquent, such as Mr. Jay Powell. Others are less coherent and less eloquent. For example, Christine Lagarde, but then she doesn't have that much experience. So all eyes on the central banks, Jonathan. Yes, and I think I might add to that the fact that the price of gold has not moved very much either, which is uh, interesting in a way, not, not necessarily always a reflection of inflation expectations, but it has barely moved at all over this period, which is uh, uh, slightly surprising as well. If you were firmly of the view that um, higher inflation, persistent inflation was coming. So if it isn't coming then, Peter, what do you think has been going on? Why are we getting this uh, visible effect in the inflation figures, or at least the rate of inflation figures? I think that's quite an important distinction between the rate of inflation and the, and the overall price level. Uh, one is indicating the rate of change, the other is uh, indicating uh, what the cumulative effect of prices is. Uh, but why do you think we are in a phase at all when people are worrying about this uh, particular problem coming out of a you know very serious uh, pandemic which has massively restricted economic activity and is only now recovering? The obvious answer, I think, would be the base effects from the pent-up demand, which was released when everybody could go shopping again. They had a lot of money to spend, which they couldn't spend before. And they're spending it now as if there's no tomorrow. So that's the obvious answer. The question is, how long do these base effects last? You could argue that it won't be long before the inflation rates are lapped by time and that that will be the crucial moment. I'm glad you mentioned the difference between price rises, which are an economic phenomenon, and the rates of inflation, which are a monetary phenomenon. I'm not saying it's particularly useful nor important to linger on this argument, but one should think about it from time to time. So the pent-up demand and the base effects and the lapping is one obvious answer. 
Another more interesting subject, which we will save for another podcast, but I think there must be some truth to it, is that investment into the traditional dirty fossil fuels like oil and gas, which normally would be forthcoming by now when you have the price of oil getting to this level, then it attracts new investment. But that isn't happening because there's huge pressure, political pressure on such investors to refrain from making these capital investments into dirty fossil fuels. But at the same time, the clean energy investment opportunities are not there yet and will take a long time. So I think what we could discuss the next time is whether this twilight zone between dirty and clean energy is going to last much longer than we thought. And therefore, inflation is going to hang around as a result. And you'll have higher commodity prices left, right and center with all the secondary effects thereof. But let's leave that for another day. And I think the key question is, are we going to be lapped? And of course, there's a political angle to this too, because the Russians now have kept their hands. Mr. Putin has had his hand on the throat of European consumers, although he's denying it. Nonetheless, he has been very slow to increase the supply of natural gas to alleviate the households. He has done it now finally, I read this morning, and that might help. It's already knocked a huge percentage off the price of gas. And let's see what happens. So it's too early to tell whether inflation will subside again. If you use a bit of common sense and if you look at the bond market to guide you, then we are effectively in a transitory period for the moment. Yes, I think that's uh, certainly a view which I'm familiar. I think one of the issues here, as always with markets, is that markets get very excited. And and the voices that are loudest are the ones who are trying to push a particular point of view. And uh, they're not always the ones who should be paying attention to. In other words, the people who think that it may be transitory are possibly not quite as vocal as those who see a vested interest in claiming that it's all going to go terribly wrong and that they, you know, investors should be doing this, that or the other going into something which they happen to be involved in producing. I think that's a fair point to make. But I think just one point on the oil price. I mean, the only thing, if you look back at history, it's quite interesting to note that, you know, the biggest economic crisis we've, we face and are often associated with a period when the oil price gets very high. And uh, for whatever reason, whether that's for political reasons or engineered by producers or whatever has been historically, we are less reliant on oil than we used to be. But the demand is still very significant. And uh, it does seem to me that if we get another period when oil prices remain very strong, that will have some consequences which are damaging, not just from an inflationary point of view, but also in terms of economic uh, activity. But coming back to the stock market, I mean, the interesting question then is, well, where are we in the stock market cycle? As you say, we've um, seen the uh, S&P 500 hit a new all-time high. Uh, It's significantly higher than it was before the pandemic. Uh, And that's true of many other stock markets around the world, though not, I'm sorry to say, uh, the UK has just finally managed to claw its way back above above its pre-pandemic level. But this raises the question, at what point does inflation if it is persistent, what point does that become damaging to the stock market? I mean, uh, shares and companies are 
essentially what we call real assets. In other words, they you would expect them to produce a return that is better than inflation. But is there a level at which, if we were to see inflation reach that, that it would be damaging for stocks? Whereas at the moment, it seems to be that the stock market is just has decided now that it wants to shrug off this uh, particular threat and uh, move higher. And therefore, the three pillars of the markets, and I'm very glad you bring this up, by the way, because it's absolutely the right question. The three pillars, which are, as we all know, growth, liquidity and valuation. If we can tick off growth by saying that, all right, now we have relatively explosive growth that might calm down again, might also be lapped, as it were. If you argue that valuations are, you know, how long is a piece of string? The whole topic of valuation requires an entire podcast by itself and is very complicated and difficult, but is also, if you like, ticked in our conversation because we're going through a very a decent US earnings season. And, and the rising stock markets at the moment is a little bit a phenomenon whereby companies beat their earnings expectations. And so the sell side analysts increase their guidance for the future. And so the business in question grows into its valuations, thereby dampening the valuations. So you can put a tick next to the valuation subject, and that leaves a liquidity. And to answer your question directly, it's going to start affecting, or it would start affecting stock markets if there was a drain in liquidity. And a drain in liquidity, of course, is something very negative because liquidity is what keeps the markets going up. And that's why I refer back to the bond markets and the bond yields, because rising bond yields drain liquidity. I'm also glad you mentioned the oil price. And I mentioned the dollar, ex external rate of the dollar, because there's a very strong link between energy prices and the US dollar. It is not normal for oil prices to rise inexorably and at the same time for the US dollar to rise. The US dollar currently is relatively strong. And something has to give in the, uh, either of those two markets, something has to happen. So it may be that the dollar is in for another uh, fallback, which would be very good news because it would reliquify the non-US dollars. In other words, the dollar is not circulating in the US, but outside the US and would be very positive for emerging markets. Or, of course, it would mean that the oil price can't last and the oil price has got to go down again to compensate for the rising dollar, which is also an injection of liquidity. It's a little bit like a reduction in tax rates. It affects everyone. And so you cannot really have on a durable basis a strong oil price and a strong dollar. One of those two has to give. And it's all about right now liquidity and how long liquidity can remain to be sufficient as it is now to keep stock markets where they are and keep them going up or when and why will liquidity start being drained, which would then have a negative effect on share prices. So if we take that last point, perhaps I can ask you to look into your crystal ball again and say, well, what do you think that the central banks are going to do? Because one of the ways that liquidity could be drained out of the market is by the Federal Reserve and other central banks uh, taking some action to try and anticipate uh, a future rise in inflation, if that's what they still think. And they also, the Fed has been talking about 
uh, obviously coming close to point. It wants to taper its asset purchases and maybe, you know, uh, interest rates could go up next as early as the end of next year. Uh, where do you think we are in that cycle and where do you think we will end up? Yes, I think we are near the beginning of a change of monetary policy by the central banks. The new monetary policy could include, first of all, tapering. Uh, well, tapering, which is an exercise which in itself, does, it's not like a flick of a switch. They don't stop their 120 billion a month immediately. They taper it, which means they reduce it. And then the next step would be to sell their existing bonds and to shrink their balance sheet. And the third step, or at the same time as the sep- second step, would be an increase in the Fed funds rate. It's more or less the same principles across the rest of the world. But of course, everybody who makes predictions that this is going to happen predicts that as a result of this tapering and winding down, bond yields first, and then interest rates are going to rise. I've always begged to differ. I've always felt that when that happens, when the tapering sets in, there is this marginal unknown investor on the sidelines who is constantly chasing yields, especially the pension funds, and they will therefore act as the replacement of the central bank and they will do the tapering for the central banks, even when the central banks start retiring. That's what I think is going to happen. And therefore, I think that we are predicated to remain in the big long scenario precisely because of that. Look, for example, at the junk bond market in the US, the high yield market. It's had another record year. You've got billions and billions, hundreds of billions of investors out there who are looking for yield, either because they don't dare to go into stock markets and remember that the definition of a bubble is a market that's gone up and that you haven't been participating in. Plus, the search for yield. Pension funds, they need yield in order to pay out their pensions. I think that this is here to stay. And um, that is the reason why tapering, balance sheet shrinking is going to be met and counteracted by institutional and mysterious investors, in other words, the mystery of the market, which will put us in a position where we are probably safer in the market, taking the risk, than the opportunity cost of not taking the risk on a long-term basis. Uh, On a long-term basis, certainly. And uh, that is, uh, of course, one of the issues here, which is that a lot of people who are involved in the markets, uh, not the pension funds and not yourself, of course, don't have a genuine long-term horizon. If they're uh, individuals, obviously, they don't have the capacity, perhaps, to wait out a period when uh, returns are not quite as high as they would like. Um, well, I hope you're right, Peter. I think that's a, it's a very interesting outlook. I mean, there are still things that could go wrong. I mean, one of those things that could go wrong, as we know, is if there is some strategic issue around the world that uh, frightens people. Those things haven't gone away just because uh, this current focus is on domestic uh, inflation and so on. And there is a slightly an element, which I think you were alluding to there, of you know how far people's expectations actually influence the way that asset prices move. In other words, if everybody thinks that inflation is coming, even if it isn't, if you like, that may actually create some more inflationary conditions by its own um, process, if you like. 
So, but basically, you're pretty sanguine about this. And uh, but, what do you think could go wrong? Where could you go be wrong in your uh, analysis at this point? That's always a question we must all ask ourselves. And before I try and answer, I'm glad you mentioned the long term. And of course, the the fourth quarter of any calendar year is probably the the worst time to discuss the long term because investors' time horizons are very short. They just go to the end of the year. Um, so we should have a, a new discussion about the long term in January, probably, when investors can't turn the clock back and are more happy to take a longer term view. Uh, what can cause the scenario, the relatively rosy scenario that I continue to have, what could derail that? Well, on the political front, in theory, you could have a, a scenario where the nanny state, as we're experiencing it at the moment, gets even worse than it is now. So the state is getting bigger, more interfering. Look, for example, at what the British government has been doing recently with regard to their tax and spend style, which has left even the Labour Party gobsmacked in the House of Commons, and quite rightly so. Look, for example, at what the American government is doing, trying to press through uh, Congress and the House these enormous amounts of fiscal boosting, which is actually no more than interfering in all aspects of the private sector. And the, these are very big amounts of money. Uh, so what could happen is that inflation could be stoked by that, number one. And of course, taxes going up is the same as inflation going up because it reduces the pricing power. So you could have a situation where the market gets fed up with that and starts reacting to these left-leaning economic measures. You can compare that with previous decades, for example, in the, in the UK stock market. Whenever the, the government was a Labour government, the stock returns were not as good as when the government was under the Conservatives. Of course, today, it's a Conservative government with Labour policies. In America, it's a left-leaning government with the expected left-leaning policies. So you could have politics derailing the trajectory of the stock market. That could definitely happen. You've talked about the effect on demand, but you haven't really talked about um, supply constraints and so on, which is obviously a very uh, our reality for many companies coming out of the pandemic. Is there a chance, a risk that some of those may become more permanent? We, you know, we talked in the past about companies deciding they couldn't afford to source all their products in China because of you know security issues and so on. We haven't really talked about the supply constraints, but presumably your view is that these will. Uh, gradually uh, disappear as people get used to working in the post-COVID uh, environment? I do, because I think that the globalization trend is like an, an enormous great big oil tanker. You can't just simply reverse it. And of course, you've got the supply constraints. But just like this big supply constraint that we had a few months ago in the Suez Canal, when everyone said, oh, this is going to derail the world economy forever. And now, of course, nobody's talking about it and hardly anybody is remembering it. The horror pictures that you see about the American ports and the Asian ports being clogged up with hundreds of vessels waiting to get in. And if they do get in and if they do manage to offload their thousands of containers, then there are no lorry drivers to drive them on to the next destination. These are all serious concerns. But... Are they going to last forever or is somehow nature going to take its course 
and they will be declogged in the end, and that the globalization trend, if that's the right word, uh, can continue undisturbed. After all, those um, factors which were part of globalization, which were also part of low inflation, things like digitalization, artificial intelligence, robotics, demographics, and not to mention the free movement of capital, these need to resume again. They're probably going on anyway, but they're going on behind the scenes because they don't make headlines. But you asked me a straight question. I think that the clogging up in the end will abate. In a year's time or maybe less, we won't notice these supply-side constraints, I think, such that the, the world can then resume some aspects of its normality. Well, we certainly hope so. It is the nature of the markets that things that are very uh, preoccupations at one point tend to sort of suddenly disappear. And if you look, you know, in a couple of years' time, if, if things don't change particularly, then you look back and, well, the pandemic will just appear as a sort of blip uh, in the stock market's progression, which is rather like 1987, the, the great stock market crash there, which is barely visible now when we look back. But at the time, obviously, it's very traumatic. But I thought I'd just finish, therefore, Peter, by asking you this. I mean, I think there are still some significant risks out there, and there are a lot of them to do, uh, geopolitical or indeed domestic political. It is a strange period which we're living through when governments are doing a lot of things that they <laughs> haven't historically done, or at least doing them to a greater extent than they were doing before. And that in turn reflects, you know, some of the, the kind of bigger economic forces we've talked about before, about, you know, wages for uh, a lot of people and so on. But leaving that to one side, I think I might just finish by asking you, obviously, you and your team invest in companies. You don't invest, invest in, the, in the world economy. And what are the companies that you invest in, particular kind of companies you're investing? What are they saying about what, how they see the outlook from here? Because presumably, if you're right about your prognosis, they will be saying similar sort of things to you. Is that actually what's happening? To an extent, and it depends. The situation differs from one company to another. But where I think that the quality growth businesses, as we call them, stand out is because this inflation problem, which obviously starts with a rise in input costs, puts pressure on the margins of businesses. And so if they're able to pass on these input costs to the consumer, they can, to a certain extent, protect their margins. If they can't, their margins will suffer. The difference between that kind of average cyclical business and the quality growth business that we invest in is that our businesses have innate, inherent pricing power across the board, always have had. They increase their prices by 1% to 2 to 3% every year. And they can do it because what they produce is an offer, is a non-critical but core service, which means that the customers can't do without them, but the cost to the customer is not critical. Therefore, the customer will shrug off the increase, the relentless or every year, the yearly increase in costs, thus enabling the companies to maintain their pricing power. I think that's an important distinction between the quality growth business and the cyclical business. The cyclical ones are slightly victims of what's going on, whereas the quality growth businesses have an edge compared with their cyclical brethren, which ma makes their business 
effectively confirms their businesses to be long duration assets, where the value in today's share price reflects the long term cash flow, the really, really long term cash flows that can be expected. That has allowed us to have a a good year in a difficult environment. Yeah. But of course, it also means, I mean, the thing, I guess, it's also fair to point out is that, uh, you know, when you get markets have with a different kind of framework for a, even for a transitory period, like in September, or in, into early October, I mean, some of the stocks that you own, their prices did fall notably, did they not? Yes, there was a rotation from growth to value, if you remember, that lasted for a few weeks. Then there was a counter rotation back from value to growth as a result of the bond deals not going up. Then you had a, a, a few weeks of the counter rotation, and now we're coming to the end of the year. So uh, I don't know what can happen in the next few weeks in terms of rotation or counter rotation, but I'm not too preoccupied with that as a long-term investor. No, of course not. But I think it just reflects the fact that, as we all know, the stock market is a bit of a, how do we put it, it's like, a, it's like an old forum where people meet and there's a lot of chatter going on and people say things and influence each other in the short term and there's a bit of a panic or a bit of a boom and uh, it can affect prices in the short term rather more than it should because, of course, the fundamental value of the businesses you own, uh, of course, don't change that much just from one week to the next. In fact, they hardly change at all. So um, I think that's a point worth repeating. But uh, in any case, so well, in a way, I'm very uh, happy to hear that you're relatively sanguine about the prospects from here, Peter. I think um, that's very encouraging. I think we'll be encouraging to a lot of people. I think there are some serious risks out there. There always are, I guess. But um, let's hope that you're right. And indeed, as you say, having got to this point in the year, it is normally the case that there's then a bit of a sprint to the finish line. And uh, in which case, this year would turn out to be, you know, a pretty reasonable year for investors in the stock market and not that bad, actually, either for for the bond markets either. So um, there we are. Who'd have thought after all the dramas of, uh, of last year? Thank you very much indeed for another very interesting conversation. And see you soon, Jonathan. Looking forward to that. Thank you. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silen. These podcasts are independently edited and produced. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or M&M podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.